0: Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us.
1: Welcome. I'm here with Jeremy Goldstein. Jeremy is the executive director of the mccain Ravenel Center at Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia. He is also the founder and director of Immerse Ed Consulting, where he helps people, teams, and organizations grow. So welcome, Jeremy.
2: Thank you. It's great to be here and uh, great to be talking to you.
1: Yeah, you too. I'm so happy we get a chance to talk. So, you know, looking at your resume and looking at the ongoing list of certifications in leadership and innovation and design thinking, it's clear that you really value lifelong learning. You've launched new initiatives to drive institutional change and in organizations, teaching and learning approach at the McCain-Ravenill Center. Can you share with us kind of a before and after picture of the approach you have taken and how you overcome resistance and the challenges you're looking to solve?
2: Yeah. Um, and I appreciate the question because it allowed me to sort of look back retrospectively on on the work that I've done here at Episcopal, but also to the like where I got to the point of even being engaged in it. And I originally started about eight years ago on something called the Washington program, which is still sort of alive within the mccain Ravenel Center structure. And I showed up with the sort of initiative and support from a head of school to implement a new program. That was deeper, more thorough, and more um, experiential education pedagogy based. I'd say the before was sort of, I guess, marked by the vocabulary that was being used around the learning. And that was really tours. Um, Some people referred to it as babysitting. Um, A lot of people saw it as an optional program. We didn't have too many people and too many students engaged in it. And when we did, it was really like your classic field trips, like the field trips you and I experienced in school, where we kind of loaded up, got out, saw something jumped in and it was really kind of siloed in that experience. Some faculty members were doing new and innovative things, but I was there to kind of provide the spark. Um, So in year one, I encountered it like an anthropologist because that's really where my training is. You know, I found myself becoming an educational anthropologist. My background is in anthropology and I really thought I'd do this participant observation. So in the first year, I went on every single one of these experiences, every single one of these tours that I possibly could. And really got inside of the experience. Mm -hmm. And of course there's bias there because I'm an adult and and I'm not Mm -hmm. a student, but I really did my best at getting inside of the program and looking at the adult experience or the faculty experience and the student experience. And my year two, I was really practicing some positive disruption and that's really taking things apart and putting them back together, doing some real big failure (laughs) and some small failure low and high stakes work. It was really a combination of those. A lot of people make the analogy of building the plane while you're flying it. But what was really interesting was one of my mentors who was the head of school at that time was very supportive and sat me down one day and he said, at the end of the day, are you looking back and trying to pick one thing out that allow you to accomplish what your vision is for that? And that was really helpful in that challenging disruption period, which is kind of like a lot of entrepreneurs go that See that too. They're kind of pulling things apart. And by year three and four, we had a vision, sort of a manifesto. And as, as an anthropologist, I think that language leads the culture. So we developed whole new vocabulary and we used the word experience versus tours. Um, and we used a lot of co-leaders versus chaperones and a lot of little things that people would look at you and be like, why are you changing the words? But as those things stick and as the learning gets stickier, we get more and more people engaged, more and more people are changing culture. And really, in the past four years, we've been able to IDH to evolve. And at this year, um, in kind of a, a lingering pandemic year, we're launching a new schedule that centers entirely on experiential learning. So at the middle of the day, our faculty are eligible to go in groups of 13 off-campus doing small expeditionary learning and experiential education as well. And there are a number of other pieces that I have in the program, but that's really the big idea is weaving X ed into the classroom. Um, We also built a professional development ecosystem surrounding this where people could get training at at organizations like iSeen and Leadership and Design, and they've been very helpful. And then we added student agency by adding choice into a line of the program, too, where students get to choose their path. And my saying now, and it has been for a long time, is I'm in the business of saying yes to everything. And that's really what I want to try to promote.
1: Wow, that was a lot. It was. I'm sorry if I rambled that. Um, no, that was great. I'm gonna start at the end of that because I wrote a blog several years ago about saying yes and how, just even as a parent, like it's my goal to say no as little as possible. Mm-hmm. So, how is it that we can arrange our day or our schedule or whatever it is that we need to move around so that we can say yes to this thing and make things happen instead of always coming at them with the no, we can't do that approach? Because even when you say yes, sometimes you'll hit a wall and it ends up being no. But at least like you've come at it out of curiosity and tried to figure out how to make it work. Definitely, I love that you created expeditionary days for the faculty to be able to learn more. But going back even farther, you know, in your first year, when you spent a year just looking from the inside out and looking from the student perspective and the teacher and the adult perspective, how did you go about that? Because I know all of these changes weren't necessarily precipitated just by you, I'm guessing. Yeah. You had lots of conversations. And so when you're engaging, especially students in that work, what did that look like for asking the students about their experience and what were they looking for?
2: I did a lot of ethnographic interviewing and I, I'm appreciating this question because it's, it's sort of like in standard design thinking or human design, uh, human centered design speak, you're saying, where are your stakeholders and pick them out. We literally had to pick out the stakeholders. I also took it upon myself to get my own work in order where I, you know, I took a three segment design thinking course at Darden and, and I did as much as I could to kind of figure out new techniques and new ideas to do this kind of field work in my own community. And it really started by asking the right questions. You know, what do you want out of this? What's the best experience you've had and what's really challenging? I had this whole segment I asked our faculty about, about departure culture, like how you leave campus and how you arrive on campus has a big effect on the learning and, mm-hmm. and whether or not there's reflection built into that as well. And a lot of our students in, in the line of ethnographic interviewing and a lot of feedback, I did do some surveys as well. I'm not crazy about them, but they do get big pieces of data in front of you. And, um, the real, the feedback the students want is not that they wanted to be entertained, but they wanted to really have something that they could engage with and talk about later. And there is like, Whoa, aha. <laughs> There is reflection being asked for by your learner. And I thought that was a, a great piece of it. So we started to design opportunities to do that. I and mean, we have all school programming, always build in reflection. And then when we have that professional development ecosystem I'm talking about, we follow the cold cycle of learning. And that's really preparation, activity, reflection, and then kind of extension. what's next. And those are big pieces. And our students were actually asking for that.
1: Yeah, that's important, especially when you look at the old field trip model that you and I were probably on. It was okay, load everybody up. Like I remember going to the zoo. They take us all to the zoo. We come back and we're like, oh, yeah. Why'd we go to the zoo? That's great.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We had fun. I like the
1: polar bear, but why did we do that? And adding that piece where you talk about it later and really integrate it and reflect on, well, why did we go there? What did we do? What did we learn? You know, adding that piece is really what integrates the learning and the understanding and allows it to transfer to other spaces right
2: Mm, definitely yeah i mean take for instance the zoo we've gone there and if you think about it um and i'm glad you brought the zoo up i'm thinking like well what does the zoo tell us about sustainability now and what does it tell us about our role as human beings in in a large natural environment and what is this replication of natural environments what does that mean I mean, I'm thinking as a teacher right now, but those are the questions I'd ask my students because it's really Mm -hmm. deeply reflective. And it's sort of like, I hope they're going home or I hope they talk to their parents instead of saying, I saw a polar bear today. They'll say, I saw a polar bear struggling with 95 degrees heat in October. That's just the one piece that I think I would focus on. But it's Mm -hmm. true. It's like your students do really ask for that engagement. They want to be transformed just as much as anyone else.
1: Absolutely. You also talked about creating a vision for the program. So it felt like maybe before there was this program and it was nice and some people experienced it, but maybe there wasn't a vision, like a purpose or a what are we doing here or what is, where does it go from here? And it's something I talked with in the last episode with Raheen, who's a 14-year-old girl in Pakistan. And she said the same thing, like, what is the purpose of school? Why am I learning this? And her educators and her head of school couldn't really answer that question. So she became very disenchanted with school but it's one of the places where you started. So can you share what grew, what is the vision of the program and, and how did that grow?
2: Yeah, I always want things to be transforming and changing. So we often talk about mission statements in education and, and everybody has a mission. Our school has one. They're great. They're lofty, idealistic kind of you know, intentional statements about where we're going to go with this. I'm a bigger fan of, and it's not my idea, of compasses or, or kind of like, where is your north? So the implementation... Is everything between you and North, but North tends to change. Magnetic North changes, right? We get all sciency with it. But the interesting pieces is that laying down a vision in advance, but also making it something that can be edited along the way is so important. Where I found myself kind of getting asked the question, like, what is McCain-Robinnell Center? What is the Washington program? I couldn't answer it really in the first months of it. So it really takes sort of a team or a collaborative effort to sit down and write the guide or the manifesto or the vision of like here's what we we see. And the other pieces of that can't stay under wraps. That has to be shared with everybody in the organization. Mm-hmm. That also I'm so open to the kind of power of feedback. I really would like someone to call me on something in that vision and, and tell me why they think that's not an accurate vision or may not be something that we want to put on our our docket. And The vision statement is is really kind of the work that lies ahead. And I love the fact that a cloud document or a Google doc allows us to keep editing it and refining it. I started the school year a month and a half ago with a guide to the programming we're doing this year. And I've edited about seven or eight times, which I think is positive. I know it can be challenging for some folks, but it really allows us to continue to think. So in the vision is the ability to keep ID and keep shifting and being agile enough to, to do that. And then in addition to it, it's like always express value. Like what is the value of going to a certain place to reinforce an academic curriculum? Mm-hmm. Well, the value is to see it in action. The value is to promote and provoke some great questions. And the value is also to provide a springboard for students to move into other areas, as you mentioned. So that's one of the big pieces of the vision and always be innovating, always be thinking of new things. I would be accused of being an early adopter in some technology things, which I am. But I also know that putting that in front of people creates this great, uh, as I use the word, ecosystem of of innovation and ideas.
1: So you had the opportunity to essentially rebuild an entire program. And when when you envision kind of what the future of school looks like, if you could build or rebuild or create or redesign like a utopian education, what would that look like?
2: I, I was thinking about this. I love this question and thank you, thank you, <laughs> thank you. It's great that it's part of your podcast questions. I was listening to the earlier episode that Lonnie Bergfest was on earlier um, and she and I have connected somehow through LinkedIn. We've been in the same circles at some level. And I love that she said that schools are flexible and agile communities. And I've sort of encapsulated that idea by turning to people and saying, have you ever seen two school years that are identical to each other? And I'm sort of like, yeah, you know, we build these schedules. We're like, this is going to be solid as a rock. We're going to move forward with it. But really, you know, there are days when something has to happen and it's an opportunity. And my first mm-hmm. principle of that utopian school you're asking about is to be agile, agile and flexible as a community. And that should be from top to bottom, from student to faculty, to administrator, to everybody, even to parents. Um, and there's this great saying in our community, there was a, a teacher, his last name was Callaway. And his statement was, every school should have a sign over it that says under construction. And it should be there forever, which I love. I embrace that idea. It's like, we're constantly redoing this stuff and it's great. And our students learn differently. They use different devices and all of these things. I'm a big fan of language immersion in any shape or form. I would really say that that have to be part of it. And this is big kind of thinking philosophically. 50% of all that we learn should be based on what's going to be asked of our graduates in five to 10 years. And that means you have people going out and seeking that information. And there is an employed futurist on your staff who is looking outside of your school and trying to see what's coming and what we can do now to get ready for that. And that's a big piece of it. Yes should be part of the mottos or norms of your school. Really getting, getting to a point where yes is really what we're aligned to do. And I'm not talking about overwhelming our plates as educators, but I am talking about yes in terms of our, our imagination. And then the final piece is being able to pause for meditative joy or pause to breathe and learn and reflect with our our groups and, and learn about that sheer joy of of giving space for it.
1: So always say yes, as much as we can. We're always under construction, which is definitely something that we are. Literally, we were under construction our school this summer. That's something I just gave a tour this morning and was talking about. Yeah, this is what we're doing now, but it's a work in progress. And as we evolve, this is where we see it going. And you know, always having that outlook, having someone who's a futurist involved and on staff and having a, a mindful element. Definitely. You said something about mindful joyfulness or something to that effect, which was a, a beautiful phrase. <laughs>
2: yeah. My, be mindful joy. Um, mindful I, joy. I, and I was thinking about it. It's, you know, it's starting to be fall here. And for the last few nights, I've been walking my dog. And I, you know, that's a point to pause for a lot of people who have kind of mm-hmm. even the mundane stuff that is a task. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've noticed a building at 7.15 p.m. each night, a murmuration of these birds, these like chimney swifts. And I've watched it three nights in a row. And then I started, there has been a crowd gathering, me looking up at the sky. It's really <laughs> kind of fun. And then people are actually pausing to do stuff. I love those moments, whether they're spontaneous or plan like plan mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I think it's an essential piece. It also weaves SEL thinking into your your educational program. Where I sort of hate the fact that we silo SEL as something we kind of slap onto everything, and I really think we need to be more mindful about like being comfortable at school, finding joy at school, you know, being at ease in those spaces.
1: Yeah, that's something that we really focus on, and and actually, you just it's described the evolution of our construction of SEL. Because we started with it in a silo and it was a class on Friday mornings, and we went to SEL, you know, like we might go to math. And then we came back and, like, yeah, that was great. And the kids were getting sound bites and, you know, an hour of understanding of how to take care of themselves. But really, they need to take care of themselves 24 hours a day. And so, how could we then move that from being something that we teach to being a part of our culture and the way that we work with tiny humans? And so instead of giving that training, you know, instead of someone coming in and giving training the students, we had someone come in and train our educators and our staff so that then the staff is using all the same vocabulary around the entire school. And so now we have a shared experience. And so, as then the staff are leading the SEL through community meetings or reflection time or mindfulness or whatever point of the week it fits for them, then all of the students throughout the whole school are using the same vocabulary. And the staff is building this culture of instead of like, I'm the teacher and this is the way we're going to discipline, it's okay, how can I help you self regulate? How can you be more self aware? Mm-hmm. What are you feeling in this moment? What do you need to get you back to a space where you can learn more effectively? And how can we create that for you? Yeah. Um, and so shifting that whole culture from SEL being this place in this moment in time to, this is what we do all day, every day, because we're humans and we have to take care of ourselves and take care of others.
2: Yeah. Can I ask you a question about that?
1: Yeah, of course.
2: I, I mean, I find that fascinating. I think I love the the intentionality of it. What would two things that you think of like a shift that you sensed after you've done that change from the compartmentalized program to the program that's everywhere?
1: I haven't had a kid in my office in two years oh. that wasn't my own. and. Sometimes he just comes in because they need to hug. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, we haven't, there's no discipline, quote unquote, that, that happens that requires someone to be sent to the principal's office. Oh, wow. It's always, you know, how, what, and we use zones of regulation. So it's, you know, Mm -hmm. I can see you're in the yellow zone or I can see you're in the red zone. Okay. Why don't you find a tool that's going to help you take a few moments in the peace corner and come join us when you're ready. And just creating that space for students to have feelings because you can't go through a six hour day and move from subject to subject and project and lunch and recess and all the interpersonal things that happen and like not have feelings. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. But allowing them to have feelings and allowing for that space for them to find what they need and to self-regulate that has really made a big difference. Yeah. And I
2: work with high schoolers and I'm listening to this and I'm like, we need to amplify that at our level more often <laughs> um, because I teach seniors sometimes and sometimes they want to be treated like they're in the K-6 through world where, you know, they, they just want someone to listen to them. They just want the space to go through those emotions that are impossible to not experience. Yeah. Wow. That's great. (laughs) Thank you for answering that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, too often what happens is they need that space and they're not getting it. And so it comes out in some other way and you end up Mm -hmm. in the principal's office having that conversation that you could have had before without something becoming elevated.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: definitely. So changing topics just a little bit, you are a frequenter of difficult conversations and enjoy leading challenging discussions. You've taught courses on anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, genocide, and even do monuments matter. What are some of the difficult topics that students are tackling today?
2: And the courses that I teach, I find it almost a luxury to get the time to talk about these things, like to set it aside. And I'll tell you when we talk about such things as, you know, genocide, um, about the debate about monuments. I always kick it off by talking to my students and say, you know, I think that their exposure to media has made them think about like these topics and discussions differently than I ever would have. And I always ask them, I was like, look, I can, I can start receiving content or I can start talking about the real deal of what, about what's happening outside of this classroom. And, you know, unanimously, the kids are voting for the real deal. They want to talk about what's really happening. They don't want adults telling them a different narrative. And I'm not talking about making it raw and painful or traumatic, but I am talking about being very honest with your students. Some of the difficult topics that, and what I'm really concerned about in my realm is um, radicalization in, that starts online. And students have this inner world and this inner life that we don't see at all as adults or as teachers. And really a lot of the work that I do I, in some of my classes, I'll bring in a, new, a sort of recovering former neo-Nazi to talk about how she fell into the movement and how she got out of the movement. And I think those firsthand stories are very important for students. Not that I think any of my students are on that path, but we do want to know that there's a conversation going on um, about this right now. We do a lot of work with the Center of Erratic, uh, Peril, which is the Center on Radicalization at American University. But really, I'm looking for current work and current crises, to use that term. And then I had this great conversation with a friend of mine about teaching and learning and I just realized our students are carrying around these devices, right? And we carry them around as well. We're going to want to work done. We collaborate through these devices, but we've also come up against something that's almost like a competing media company to teaching and marketing. And that's something that I want to explore is sort of like, there's a flow of information and content that's not coming from school and it's very powerful. And so do we inoculate? Do we curate? What, What do we do as educators? To really get our students to a place where they're discerning consumers of content and also curators of content, um, and I get to work with a lot of upper-level students. So, what they're really looking for is something that helps them either simulate or model the real world. And the irony is, is they're carrying this sort of unreal world around in their hand at times. So, we we sort of navigate in there. We talk about that. We do a lot of stuff about symbols because. A lot of the language online is symbolic language, and my background's in symbolic anthropology. So there's this really interesting discussion of you know how do people use them, how can mm-hmm. they be misconstrued or used badly, or used for for really you know ill means and things like that. Those are some of the things. And then the pressure and anxiety of being a teenager folds into all of that because this electronic thing, the digital engagement, is something that tends to. Strike. I'm seeing it with my thirteen-year-old. It's really hard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that we talked about this morning, too, in a conversation that I had, even just with our like second graders, is how do we look at news with a critical eye? How do we start yeah. to build those critical thinking pieces and starting to ask those questions? And is it true? Is it real? Is it fake? Where did it come from? Who created it? Is hopefully laying the base to start to oppose some of the radicalization. Mm-hmm. But you're right, even... You know, whether it's somebody who's being taken into, you know, like an online thought process that's leading them somewhere dark or just scrolling through Facebook, which can lead you somewhere dark, admittedly. But also, you know, looking at all the happy people and just keeping in mind that, like, that's a moment in time when they smiled for a photo. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that everything is okay all the time. And to just not compare ourselves to these images that we see that are one, you know, one millisecond in time that somebody took an image is in no way indicative of their entire being. Absolutely, And I think that's a big piece that we're really struggling with as a society is looking at all these things and thinking we need to live up to this image or this thing or, you know, whatever it is that we're looking at online without taking into account that that's a nanosecond in <laughs> in a lifetime.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We can stage it. We can edit it. I, I have to note that because I was thinking about the quote and I don't know who it's attributed it to, but it's what is it? Comparison is the thief of joy. Right. And it's just sort of like if we're spending so much time comparing ourselves to the nanoseconds you're talking about, we may be wasting a lot of time in our lives, you know.
1: Well, we all know we waste a lot of time on Facebook.
2: <laughs> yes. The big time waste is is still there. I, I think with students, you know, the ones that I work with. They're conscious of it, but I also know that we all, and even as adults, they fall into those traps you're describing too.
1: Yeah. So, lastly, I run an elementary school, as you know. Can you share a story that you remember from your elementary school years?
2: Yeah, I and I was looking through Up Academy, and, and part of the reason kind of I was drawn to this discussion. I went to a lab school called Thomas Metcalfe School in Illinois. I'm from the town of Normal. It's actually a town in Illinois.
1: I know. I grew up in Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Great. Another Midwesterner.
2: (laughs) My dad taught at ISU and I'm from the center, the very center of Illinois. Uh It's the flattest part in the state. Um, But there was a great lab school there that I went to grade school in. And either by intention or by design or just by the university's process, it had a combination of students who are completely able-bodied and without any um, learning difficulties or anything like that. And then also just this combination of students who are being, you know, fostered by the lab school approach, and people are working on different pedagogies with individuals who may be physically challenged or in in other directions. And it was a broad range of students. Looking at your website and learning more about Academy, I was sort of like, wow, well, I had a real gift there of grades three through six, where I was able to be in this environment with students from so many different backgrounds. I saw them as just very strong individuals. Mm -hmm. There were so many differences in there. I myself had learning differences. So I was there for that. And I thought that, you know, if there's going to be a place where, and I try to be an empathetic person as an adult, but if there's going to be a place where students can kind of practice empathy every single day, it's between those wide ranges of groups who learn differently, move differently, think and act differently. And that was a real gift for the, the lab school environment. And then there's another layer in there that I, it sort of came up as I was thinking about this is that this was the, um, late 1970s and we had an arrival in early eighties of Vietnamese refugees who came from Vietnam. And those students immediately were drawn to our school. And, you know, I grew up between the United States and France. My mother's French and my dad's American and I went to grade school in France. So I had been the other or the outsider in a French school system. And I realized that like I was watching that developed from students who are new Americans, just arriving, going to school with, you know, they didn't speak English. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting. Like, I feel like that point in time at the school with their approach to teaching and learning and with their approach to, you know, bringing in new families was just kind of like, wow, I was pretty lucky to be in that place. And it wasn't easy. I mean, it was difficult. There was tension. As a student, you could sense there was tension. And now I think back and I'm like, what was that like to be an educator at that time too? So that, that, that's my elementary school experience, which I kind of connect directly to the work that you're doing too. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's fantastic.
1: Thank you. What a great perspective. So can you share how people can get in touch with you?
2: Yes. I, of course, can be found at Episcopal High School. And, you know, my email is jlg at episcopalhighschool.org. I'm also open to connection on LinkedIn. I like the, you know, LinkedIn conversations to so use social media. I have a website also, Immersed, and Immersed is the word Immersed, but with two capitals, E-D as in education, and it's ImmersedConsulting.org. So you can reach me any of those ways. Um, If you'd like to email me directly or connect through LinkedIn, that's great, or even off the website at Episcopal High School. Um, I'm open to any connection. I love having great conversations like these. So thank you for having me.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Have a great day. You too. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive inclusive elementary school, UP Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere, for use of their audio track, MIHO. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.